This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome back. So, when I sat down to watch Padma Lakshmi's new show, Taste the Nation, in preparation for this interview, I was sure I'd enjoy it, but it turned out to be so much more than that. I've always liked Padma's approach to food, and she's a terrific host on Top Chef, my favorite competitive reality show for 17 seasons now. She seems to be able to describe every bite in a way that we, the viewers, can literally taste it from home. Padma's been an outspoken advocate for human rights and women's rights, and a few years ago she wrote an excellent memoir called Love, Loss, and What We Ate. For the past few years, in everything she does, she seems to have the intention of owning her own story. And she really has. Her honesty has helped many. She's shared her mother's story of leaving India after divorce for a new life in the United States. About growing up in America and the insecurities she suffered as a teen. About her modeling career, her marriage to Salman Rushdie, and why she started the Endometriosis Foundation after suffering from the painful gynecological disorder until she was diagnosed at the age of 36, being very honest about how it affected her sex life and her marriage, helping so many others to speak of this. And as she says often to women and in our interview, do not feel sorry for your own ambitions. Okay, back to her new show, Taste the Nation. In the show, she travels to a different part of the U.S. to highlight a different immigrant community, cook with them, taste the food, and highlight all of American culture. So I thought I'd enjoy it, but I really loved it. I find it highly affecting, and it takes the traveling food show to another level with emotional meetings and highlights different cultures in a moment where we really might need it the most. So I was honored to get a chance to have a conversation with Padma Lakshmi about her life, her show, and of course, her honesty. First, a taste of Taste the Nation. This is my first rodent. What does it taste like to you? Taste like chicken. <laughs> Everything that the American cuisine is today is because all these different people and different cultures contributed to it. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Oh my God, it's such a flavor explosion. Everybody knows Thai food. Nobody knows about Thai people. There's the dish and then there's the hands that prepare and serve the dish. You are a cook good, baby. <laughs> this alone is reason to come to El Paso. <laughs> mm. That's good, huh? <laughs> Burp a little. <laughs> The Thai 2.0, dude. Padma Thai? Watch your back. God damn it. <laughs> Food is medicine. We've all heard that before. It's much deeper than just what feeds you. It's like a spiritual connection. The gateway to another culture often happens first through food. Okay, inshallah. <laughs> If you sit at my table and eat with me, you'll know who I am. This is what American food looks like. This is the original. This is real America. I'm really sorry you can't eat this. I always do that. 
So Padma Lakshmi, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for your incredible new show, Taste the Nation. It, it made me cry way too many times. And, and not just because I'm, I'm not a great cook. <laughs> but seriously, we're doing this show a bit earlier than, um, than I'm going to release it. And it's in the midst of the George Floyd protests and the murder. And going through this series the same few days as this was happening, it just felt even more poignant. And several of your interviewees and you yourself have talked about food is resistance, food is political. Tell me a little bit more about your thinking around that. Well, there's nothing more visceral than food. We have to have it, we need it for our survival. I really believe that there are two things in this world human beings need for survival. One is food for survival of one's body, and the other is love and understanding. Um, for once, the survival of one's spirit, you know. Um, and so there's nothing to bring home a point uh, than more than, say, you know, food scarcity or the kinds of foods that we eat. I think that we don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. And, you know, we've seen that in a very acute form right now with COVID-19 as well, with all of these uh, restaurants who are really struggling. And, and most of them are mom and pop family owned businesses. Uh, many of the ones you see in Taste the Nation are exactly the kind of restaurants that are really suffering right now. And, you know, because Anybody can make food. You don't have to know the language or anything. There is a lower point of entry. So um, that is why so many food businesses are immigrant owned. Um, and because if you come to a new country and you don't know the language or you haven't had a chance to get licensed in whatever, you know, other skill of your profession, whatever, you know, food is a place that you can not only um, make a living from but make a career you know like make a lifelong career out of and and to me the most exciting things um in happening today in american food um are coming out of immigrant communities mm -hmm. and women you have such a special focus on women and mothers and immigrants and their perseverance there's a very special moment in the show where your own mother on the verge of tears talks about having to leave you for periods at a time um, with her, your grandparents so she could start a new life for the two of you in New York. And it's still so painful for her. How did that make you feel that moment? It was hard. You know, that, um, that whole episode is one that I, of course, have a hard time being objective about, you know, because it is my own family. Uh, it was very important for me to have the show be about the guests, not about me. And then, of course, this case, um, the guest is my mother. And, you know, my mother still carries a lot of that pain. Um, and also, you know, even though objectively she knows that her uh, failed marriage or her divorce is not her fault, she still also is someone who's entrenched by the values that she grew up with in her generation. And so, you know, I think for her, she was afraid that people in India and her family would say, well, you know, what do you expect? She's a divorced woman, sort of speak. So for her, it's, it's very painful. She suffers a lot of guilt from having left me in India for two years. Um, also, you know, because of uh, separating from my father, I didn't see him either. So I didn't see either of my parents 
in the very formative, formative years of one's toddlerhood, you know, from two to four. So I think what you saw there was some of that kind of just involuntarily gushing out. And I think for many people, it is a very visceral, emotional thing to leave everything you know, your life, your loved ones, and, and, and go and pick up and move to a completely new country where you really have no one and start from scratch. And I actually, you know, I'm in a better position because of the struggles of my mother. And I'm able to see that that actually is an incredibly um, big act of strength, not, not of, of weakness. And so I think she always felt, you know, there's a, still a young, younger version of her that feels like she had to flee India because she couldn't make her marriage work. And that was somehow her fault when obviously that is, that is not objectively true. Um, and so I think, you know, now, for instance, if I can make an example in my own life, like now I have one successful show. I really hope this other show will be successful. I have published books. I'm fine. I'm doing great. And, you know, I have a nice life. But inside, I'm still walking around sometimes with all of the baggage and fears and insecurities of that 16-year-old girl, you know, who, who didn't have much and who was trying to find a place in the world for herself and, and who was literally abandoned by her own father. You know, my father um, only gave my mother the divorce because she agreed to sign an affidavit saying that she would never ask him for any um, financial support mm -hmm. for, for me. Um, and so he really was not a part of my life at all. And so, you know, I think when one of your parents is, is absent from your life, it, it creates insecurities that are so, so visceral and so beyond language or rationale. Um, and that stays with you for a long time. So I think, you know, my mother has her set of that. And so she's still that young single mother who doesn't want anyone to think that she didn't do as well for her child as someone else could have done if they had stayed with their spouse. And, and it's so interesting. There's even a beautiful Peruvian woman on your show who has almost exactly the same story as you and your mother do. So this, the fact of mothers trying, doing the best they can um, to make a better life Women have always had two careers, um, one which was to be, you know, a mother or a spouse or just be the main linchpin of the family. And then the other one was the career they had outside of the home to earn wages if they so chose. But they always had to make both of those things work. Um, whereas men have had a professional life and a personal life. Yeah. And, you know, I give interviews all the time um, with Tom Colicchio, who is, you know, the head judge on, on my show. And, and, you know, when we are sometimes interviewed together about our show, you know, nobody ever asks him about life work balance. No. Nobody ever asks him. <laughs> I hate him that question. Nobody ever. I mean, it is, you know, I ask myself that question, like, but, you know, that's my own struggle in my head. Like, and nobody also ever asks him how he keeps, keeps his figure, you know? 
You say on the show, um, I think it's in that episode with your mother, that your journey of being Indian in America has never been easy. I I always cringe the first day of school because invariably there would be some teacher who would mispronounce my name, you know, Panda, Lockjaw, Paloma, Parma. I mean, you know, it makes me laugh now, but... Um, Panda Lancashire, I had... Um, it doesn't make you laugh when you're a teenager. I can get that. Right. You know, now I can laugh about it. But, um, you know, before it wasn't that funny. And it just... Because also you're doing it at a time when you're so vulnerable and you just want to blend in and not stick out and, and not give your peers any reason to ridicule you. There was that. There was the inevitable terror of opening my lunchbox to see what was on the other side of that Tupperware lid, you know, when everyone else had really nice peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or, or bologna sandwiches, you know, there was that. There was also like um, people asking me, you know, why does your mom have a dot on her head? And then like the day that we would have to go to some um, religious function that I would have my Indian clothes on and I would run into somebody and they'd be like, why are you dressed? like that you know so all all of those kind of things that of course now this generation is different because we have the internet and so the world is a much bigger and a big uh, a much smaller place at the same time you know and so people are exposed to more uh cultures and more of more cultures that live side by side with them in this country but when i was growing up that really wasn't the case. And there weren't even that many Indian kids in my school, whether it was elementary school or high school. And so, you know, they didn't know what to make of me. And so I always kind of, I felt awkward. I felt like my neck was too long. I was too tall. My skin was brown. And, you know, I remember being at summer camp in fourth grade and we would take a trip to Coney Island and everybody would be in their bikinis and they would be lying down and taking sun, you know, like getting a tan. And I certainly didn't need a tan. And I knew that I would be going back to India where my grandmother would be like, why are you so black? Why are you so dark? You know, you need to stay out of the sun. Cause of course Indian culture has a lot of color prejudice baggage too. Um, you know, that's deeply insidious and, and horrible. So, you know, I, I had a different experience. And also, like, I had different rules that I had to live by than an American teenager because my parents, or my mom and my stepdad were, you know, conservative middle-class Indian people. Like, it was just hard to explain to my classmate who was male why he couldn't come to my house and do the project with me you know, or my teacher that I had to have, you know, only female partners and things like that. And, you know, there were cultural clashes within my own family because when my mother remarried, um, she remarried a North Indian man who had never been to India until she took him. He had grown up in Fiji. You know, the British took indentured servants all over the world. That's why you have so many Indians in Guyana and Trinidad and, and Kenya and Nigeria and stuff. So, so, you know, he was much stricter than even my mother was because he had um, Indian values that were 200 years old, you know? And so because that population was afraid of losing their culture, they didn't really mix with the indigenous Fijian population. And, 
So there's like all kinds of layers like this. And that's when cultural misunderstanding comes. And so for me, the biggest goal with this show is to hopefully expose a greater number of American viewers to um, cultures that exist right here in our shores and, you know, expose themselves that what it means to be an American today is a lot of different things. And that we should open up our definition of what that is because it's only there. It's so interesting in your show to see um, up close that there's so many people, second generation, that are living the traditions of their families but have never been to the countries and maybe never even will, and, and still bringing those traditions along, and that's sort of what America is. I thought those stories were incredible. But I have to say, your honesty seems to be such a huge part of your journey. I remember around the time of your memoir, you said many times that that you kind of made a decision to make your history your own, to be open, to help others, mainly women. How has being this honest changed your life? It's been liberating, to be honest. It, um, you know, it's, it, it, there's a beautiful um, freedom that when you, you know, the best thing about writing that memoir is that nobody could talk shit about me because I had already said everything myself. So there was nothing, you know, there was nothing to be afraid of because for so many years of my life, the, the narrative of my life was told through the gossip columns. And that had very little resemblance to the human being that I was or the life that I experienced actually living in my skin. And it was all distorted and it was all very, you know, cynical. And so I just decided that, um, first of all, I love reading memoirs. And I knew that if I didn't write a memoir that was excruciatingly truthful, that it wouldn't be worth a read. You know, my, my literary ego just wanted the book to be good, frankly, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I am cursed and blessed with really good taste in books. Yeah. Well, it's just, it has a Didion-esque quality to it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'm a huge, huge fan of Jones. And um, yes, that I mean, I had, you know, def definitely had several totems looming around in the air above my desk in the office. And, and so I wanted the book to be truthful. And then, it you know, it was really... I wouldn't say cathartic, but it was very, um, it was very uh, useful uh, for me to evolve my opinion of myself and my own life. You know, just the experience of writing everything down on page and, you know, about your life lets you look at the, the list in hard copy. What surprised about yourself? Well, there were patterns that I never realized. For instance, you know, when I write about the experience with my stepfather um, and how I really didn't like him. And, you know, I didn't really realize until I, I wrote, I was in the process of writing the book, that some of the reasons that I had for not liking him were valid, as you know, but some of the, a lot of the reasons that I initially didn't like him before any of that stuff happened um, was because of my own self-loathing. Like, you know, I was, um, I was judging him the same way that the people at school had judged me, you know, that I came from one of those smelly third world countries with gross food and dark skin and no deodorant and, you know, 
left and right. You can, you know, you can write as many pages as you want about that subject. And I didn't really realize that. I didn't really realize that one of the reasons I didn't like him was because I was embarrassed of his crudeness. And it was this, it was the, my own insecurity that didn't want me to be lumped in with that again. And, and so that was really illuminating. And it also, you know, it allowed me to forgive my stepfather for some of the very turbulent and, and, and painful periods of our relationship um, that really did happen, you know? Um, but, but, but now like I call my stepfather every day because if I don't, he gets worried. And, and, you know, my daughter has a completely different relationship with him than I did because he's grown as a human being. And so life is long and it's important to understand that everybody goes through their own evolution. And so I wanted to show that I wanted to show who I was um, independent of just the headlines or the pictures on a red carpet of me in a fancy dress. Um, I didn't know how that book would come out. It was supposed to be a healthy eating book. So there you go. Were the reactions to this book, in your honesty, different in India than they were in the States? You know, I didn't know. It's interesting. I didn't know how it would be accepted because, yes, I'm very Indian and I I still have an apartment in India. I go there all the time. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm basically an American person. I live here. My work is here. My family, my home. And so I conduct my life by the standards of most American culture. But... I didn't know. And it was very hard. I did allow the people that were mentioned in it to read it before um, I did the final copy edit because I thought that was only fair. Um, I, I think that I was worried about how it would be perceived, especially because I'm writing, you know, really, really deep nitty gritty stuff. And I was really happy with the way it was expect, accepted in India. It did really well. Um, and I did do like a five-city book tour mm-hmm. um, in India that was arranged as a cultural exchange between the U.S. Dipl- diplomatic corps and the Indian government, which is something that would never happen, you know, <laughs> um, t- today. Like they have a little budget for cultural exchange and they thought that this was a good idea. Yeah, and so... I was really lucky because I got to meet for the first time my peers in India, you know, because every time I go to India, I just spend time with my family and I live a very cloistered life. And I don't know what it is to have an exchange on a professional level with other men and women my age in media or in any industry. And so I loved the book tour for that. And one of my favorite events that we did was um, a speaking engagement at a women's college. And it was the college that my niece happened to go to. Um, and there were 500 women or young women there. And they, I mean, I've never heard such a loud noise. It was just like <laughs> mayhem. And, you know, I had two guards with me um, to, you know, just crowd control. And, um, and I, what I loved most is that the guards were also female. They were female officers, you know, with the beret and the, you know, khaki outfit and the braid and the, you know, it was amazing. And, and, um, I mean, it was kind of overkill, but I was happy that they were women. And so it was really cool to speak to 500 18 and 19 year old Indian, Indian college students 
Um, there's, their questions were really poignant. You know, I think that reading my story kind of empowered them a little bit, that they didn't have to feel sorry for their own personal ambitions, that it was okay to disagree with your parents, because that's a big part of Indian culture, you know. And even the story of my mom just leaving India. I mean, in her case, luckily she had the love and support of her parents. But, you know, that is a very rare thing. Like 95, it's very possible that 95 out of 100 people in her situation would not have had that support and would have said, you just have to suck it up because this is your bad luck. So I was, you know... I was really, I didn't realize the effect that my book would have. I really had no intention of, of doing that, or I wasn't consciously thinking that when I was writing it, which is probably a good thing because that's not how. It's a universal thing for all of us women who have been through. No one um, who looks as beautiful as you and has this career as you is talking about endometriosis. I mean, things like that, that really affect us that no one has talked about and especially not how it affects our relationships. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, the thing about truth telling is that it, it really takes away, uh, takes away the power of others to control you. Um, and that was really um, revolutionary for me. For so much of my life as an actor, as a model, um, I tried to be whoever I thought American culture wanted me to be just as a function of wanting to work. And no matter what I did, I was never considered like the girl next door. I was never going to be that. I was going to be me, scars and all. You know, I wasn't going to erase the scar in my arm. I wasn't going to erase the color of my skin. And so at some point, I just thought, fuck it, you know. Um, I'm, I'm tired of bending myself. Um, and I'll either function or I won't. But at least I'll get to just relax and be me. And, um, and I think that is really when I started doing work that was much more um, meaningful, certainly to me, but also had um, a bigger ripple effect in, in, in the community that I was publishing in. Going back to the series, there's a wonderful episode with you and your daughter where you're baking dosas and, and she's like, yeah, well, American waffles are a bit better. <laughs> and that, <laughs> and yeah. I thought it was wonderful. I have a, my family, my sons, I, we also have a whole bunch of cultures and I so want them to you know, see this from this culture. And it's hard because they're growing yeah. up in something else. Tell me mm -hmm. about how, what your relationship is with food and India and your daughter and the States. I mean, it's fine. It's great. You know, I mean, we eat, and this was something I did all my life, even before my child, we eat all kinds of things. So, you know, we'll have enchiladas one night and then we'll have dan dan noodles the next night. And then we'll have dal and rice or whatever. So, so I don't want her just to love Indian food, although that is an emotional reaction of a mother. I want her to really love all kinds of food. Yeah. And so also, you know, she gets so much American culture just by virtue of living in America. And, you know, her father is American. He's from Texas. And, and so she's getting an avalanche of that. She's breathing. That's in the air she breathes and the water she swims in. So for me, I, I'm probably overzealous and then I feel I have to, you know, stick up for her other half and I want her to, and it's also a function of, I want her to go to India and be comfortable. You know, I, I speak Tamil, I speak Hindi, though not well. Um, I, 
remember being in India. I, my mom sent me to India for three months every summer during summer holidays. And I'm glad she did that. But I saw a lot of my cousins come to India and be basically brown, brown skinned white people and have like really hard time eating the food and being like, ew, there's so many flies or ew, what is that? And I always thought they were super annoying. And so, you know, and almost to the board, you know, borderline disrespectful. So I did not want my, my own child to be that way. I think that was the thing that would irk me. Um, and, and so it's, it's from that place that, you know, and she, she's so full of it. She likes dal now. She just needs me to mix it with ghee and with my hands. So the ratio of rice to dal is exactly perfect. Um, and you know, it's, it's not possible that she not like dal because she eats it a lot. She just doesn't like it on principle. And the funny, and the funny thing is that when her friends come over, they really love Indian food and she's always kind of surprised by that, you know? Yeah. They, they want to do their own thing. I have one who will eat absolutely anything. I mean, you'll give sushi, Indian, what, you know, anything. And then I'll have one who had a phase who only ate things that were white, white rice, white bread. It's like, (laughs) he is going to die on me, (laughs) but that's changed too. So they go through different things. Yeah. I know that I'm a bit over time, but I have to ask you a few questions about Top Chef. Of course. Long time um, fan. I absolutely adore the show. And I think you guys have done something so special because these are real masters. And we're, it's not, it's a reality show where you're actually learning something. Thank you. I hope so. Yeah. How close do you get the contestants? I keep thinking as a viewer is like, oh my God, no, don't make the risotto in a 15 minute challenge. You know <laughs> that you should not do this. I never learn. I know. I know. Um, I think you get in that headspace and then you lose your mind because of the stress and just being so focused on what you want to do and you know because you want to win so badly. I, I'm not close to them when I do the actual filming and that's very purposeful because, you know, I'm judging their food and I want to make sure that I'm as impartial and I, you know, I don't want even the appearance um, of, of, of anything improper to be there or favoritism or anything like that. So, so, but I am the person that is with them day in and day out every day. And so each batch of contestants on every season is, you know, I liken it to uh, a new batch of fourth graders that a high, you know, a little elementary school teacher would have, you know, like a little um, maternal feeling or, you know, sometimes I'm rooting for all of them just to do their best, you know, regardless of who I think made the best dish on any given challenge. Um, I'm kind of rooting for them to do well for their own personal best because as, as hard as Top Chef looks on TV and it is really hard, it's way harder when oh, you're God. there in person. It is. They're sleep deprived. They don't see their families. They can't read a newspaper or go on the internet. If they have books that they're reading, they have to have them pre-approved. They have to have all their phone calls to their children or, or, or partners monitored. It's, it's, a, it's a really pressurized um, special period in their lives. And any contestant will tell you that, you know, it was a very, very... Um, forging experience for them as chefs. And so, you know, I do get close to them by the end of filming, but I don't express my affection or closeness in any way because I have to be um, almost apathetic, you know? Um, I, I like to think that 
over the years, I've found a way to be empathetic while still being apathetic, if that makes sense, to what they're going through, because I know more than anyone, um, you know, how hard they work. And so um, after the show is done, you know, I will see them often at food events or, um, you know, things like the James Beard Awards or something like that. And once the, epi- once the season is over um, and we've crowned a winner and all that is passed, I can be free to, you know, correspond with them if I want to, socialize with them if I want to. Obviously, I'm close. You know, we've had over 200 contestants at least come through. So, I'm, I'm closer to some than others, you know, but um, even, the, even the shitty people who, you know, get knocked off or like even, not that they're shitty. I mean, when I say shitty people, I'm saying the ones that are disrespectful. Um, even, even those people I have empathy for and I try to remember that their behavior is a product of the duress that they are under. Um, that it's not normal life for them, you know. One of the things that's so great about Top Chef is that you guys have to impart to us what you're tasting and you use such incredible language around the food. I keep thinking that somehow you guys managed to describe it in a way that I can taste it. Is this something that you've thought about a lot or does it just come naturally? I mean, I am somebody who always is happy to talk about food from morning to night and I'm the kind of person who's planning my dinner when I'm washing my lunch dishes I've grown up in a family like that. Um, you know, if you've read the memoir, you know that, you know, there were eight to 10 people living in my grandmother's house and there were only two burners. So we were always cooking. But um, I think that that is, you know, it's, an, it's a miracle to me that our show does so well because and I think that is a testament to how we describe food. Because, you know, on, on Project Runway, you can see the clothes, you can see whether, you know, the model can walk or not. On The Voice, you can hear the music. Um, And in sports, you can see, you know, and then you can argue with the referee about the slam dunk or whatever. But on our show, you are really looking to us to interpret and describe that experience for you. And as a food writer, it is what I do in and out. You know, I'm not a chef. I don't have any restaurants. That's Tom's gig. And that's why he's the head judge. He comes to us with a world of experience. I'm not an editor. I don't publish a food magazine. And that's how, you know, that's how Gail comes to it. She's also worked um, extensively for other chefs and, and other editors and stuff. So I come to it really as the audience's representative. And I see it as my job to tell you what that's like. Just like it's not much different from the job I have when I write a cookbook, I need to communicate to you when I'm not standing in that kitchen with you, how to make something, how it should smell, how it should look, how the popping should sound of the mustard seeds and when you know it's done. And so um, it is It is something that is anyway how I speak, certainly about food. Um, I'm somebody who reads cookbooks when I get them cover to cover. And, um, you know, I may or may not follow the recipe very faithfully, but I love cookbooks and I love food writing. Um, I can probably quote verbatim from MFK Fisher to you. And so, um, you know, I think whatever you're writing about, you should write about with great care. And yeah, whether, whether it's a bowl of rice or ball bearings.
I'm not going to ask you who's going to win this season, even though it's so exciting. It's driving. <laughs> but it, finally, one of the other sides to, to round this up about the wonderful honesty of Padma is, is Champagne Padma. We love her. <laughs> and we see her a tiny bit in this new show as well. But I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Funny. But uh, Padma, thank you so much for taking your time with me. And thank you for this show. Um, I think it's going to affect a lot of people, especially in the moment that we're in now with so many terrible things coming together at the same time. This, I think, will remind people that we should be together. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you for supporting the show. I just hope it finds its way. Obviously, as you can imagine, with COVID, it's been a challenge to get the word out and promote it the way I would normally promote any other you know, project. Um, so it helps to have people just saying, hey, give this a chance, because if enough people do that, then hopefully we'll have the second season. Thank you so much to Padma Lakshmi. Taste the Nation premieres on Hulu on June 19th. And the last episode of Season 17 of Top Chef premieres this week. And thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. If you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It really helps others find us. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, and thank you so much for listening. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.